You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. This uh, is another confrontation about the Sabbath day. But on this Sabbath day, Jesus does the miracle of healing a man with a withered hand. Uh, And this is a miracle that often doesn't get a whole lot of uh, publicity in Christian uh, writings and stuff. But this is a really beautiful text for us. Uh, But our passage tonight is the fifth dispute between Jesus and the Pharisees. There's actually five rounds of disputes uh, between chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 6, between Jesus and the Pharisees. But this confrontation is the climax of all of Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees so far. It's the climax of all of them. So let me give a brief recap of what we've seen since chapter 2, verse 1. We've seen Jesus make indirect but powerful claims that he is God in the flesh. Some examples of that are, you you remember in the first passage in chapter 2, Jesus claimed that he could forgive sins, right, with a paralyzed man. In the last passage in chapter 2, we see Jesus say that he, the Son of Man, is Lord even of the Sabbath, meaning he's Lord over God's day, right? So those are both very powerful claims to his deity. We've also seen Jesus challenge the Pharisees' self-righteous and works-based religious ideas, We've seen Jesus openly defy the Pharisees' religious traditions that aren't found in the Bible. We've seen our Lord declaring a message of grace, right? I've come not for the righteous, but for sinners. Meaning, I've come to save people who know that they're sinners, not people who think that they're righteous. And that message of grace is a message that was at odds with the Pharisees' understanding of God and their understanding of salvation. And in all of this stuff that Jesus has said and done so far, The Pharisees oppose him at every single point. No matter how foolish Jesus makes them look, they oppose him at every single point. They reject his authority. They refuse to acknowledge his miracles that are proof that he is who he says he is. That They they reject that he has any authority to teach them. Simply put, no matter what Jesus says or does, no matter how strongly he shows the Pharisees that they're foolish, no matter what kind of proof that he gives, they reject him. They reject his message. They reject everything about him. They reject Jesus. And our text this evening is no different. The Lord Jesus is going to point out the hypocrisy, coldness, deadness and hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are going to respond with rejection of Jesus yet again. They're going to respond with a refusal to submit to him. But this time, I'll go ahead and give you a spoiler, this time their anger toward Jesus is going to reach a fever pitch. And in verse 6 of our passage this evening, they're going to begin to plot a way to have Jesus killed. That they were, they were so proud and they were so arrogant that the Pharisees refused to see the Lord who stood before them. Their religious pride and self-righteousness was so strong and intoxicating to them that they refused the true and living God who was right before their eyes. They were hard-hearted, stubborn, stiff-necked, and because of that, they rejected the only Savior. But as Jesus goes toe-to-toe with the Pharisees in this passage we're about to read, I think we learn a lot about our Savior. 
we learn a lot about Jesus himself. And you guys will remember months ago when we started Mark, I talked about Mark's big purpose in writing this gospel was to teach people who Jesus is, what he's like, what he's done, and what he promises to do. And we're, we're going to see some beautiful truths about the character of our Lord. What's he like? All right, this should excite you if you're a Christian. We're going to see something about the, of the character of Jesus. And in these beautiful truths of his character, we're going to be reassured that he is indeed a fit Savior for sinners. But at the same time, as his people, we're going to be very much challenged to walk in his steps and imitate him. So here's the roadmap for where we're going to go this evening. Um, it's a, a little bit different from what I normally do, maybe. Um, often I like to preach, and as I go through the text, make little points of application here and there. Um, but what I want to do this evening is just simply walk through the text, I think, fairly quickly. Maybe you won't think that, but I have a mic and you don't, so that doesn't matter. Um, right? We're going to walk through the text fairly quickly because uh, I want you guys to understand what exactly happened in this passage. And, and then at the end, I want to point out three things that we see in the text. And these, the three things are this, so there's no surprises here. The first is, I want us to see the courage of Jesus. Second, I want us to see the selfless compassion of Jesus. And then thirdly, on the contrary, I want us to see the hard-heartedness of sinful human beings. So, so we're going to walk fairly quickly through the text and then get into those three things that we learn from it. And just so you know, you should thank me. I originally had five, but I didn't think you wanted to be here for an hour and ten minutes listening to me preach. Uh, yes, we edit sermons, believe it or not, even though they're long sometimes. Um, but with that said, let's go ahead and read the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our merciful and compassionate God, we come before you this evening asking you to humble us and make us teachable. Please, God, open our hearts to receive the word that was just read. Please soften our hearts so that we can rightly hear and see Jesus and submit to him. Please, God, open our eyes so that we can behold the Savior and rejoice in how perfect that he is to save sinners. Glorify yourself this evening in the word preached. And we ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so our text begins by telling us that Jesus was again in the synagogue. The synagogue is where uh, the Jews worshipped on Saturdays. Um, and it was the Sabbath day that he enters the synagogue, which the Sabbath, as we talked about last week, was Saturday under the Old Covenant. It's Sunday now for Christians under the New Covenant. Uh, but this is not the same Sabbath day that we saw last week 
where Jesus was arguing with the Pharisees in the grain field, right? Luke tells us on another Sabbath day, right? So this is probably the following week Jesus is having yet another run in with the Pharisees. But Jesus goes to the synagogue to teach. Luke chapter 6, the parallel account there in Luke 6 tells us he's there teaching. Remember, you guys need to remember, Jesus is a traveling rabbi. He's growing in popularity. People want him to come and teach in their synagogues. So he's in the synagogue teaching. And in this synagogue on this particular Sabbath day is a man with a withered hand. And this man, simply put, this isn't like it's kind of a crass way of saying it. I'm a bit of a redneck. He had a crippled up hand. His hand was crippled. Uh, the, the word translated here, withered, is the same word used in Jesus' parable of the sower, referring to the plant that springs up quickly but has no root and withers away under the heat of the sun. Same word there used for wither. So for something to be withered means that there is no life in it. It's like a dried up plant, right? It, it, this man's hand is knotted up. It's shriveled. It's got no life in it. He has no strength in it at all. Um, this man's hand was essentially a crippled mess that hung lifeless at his side. It was useless to him. Um, we don't know from the text, we don't know if this man was born like this or if his hand became this way after years of hard labor. We don't know. There's a church tradition that said it happened to him later in life because he was a stone worker, but we don't know if that's true or not. Um, but regardless, this would have been a horrible thing to have happen to you, right? We would all agree it would be awful to, to lose the use of one of our hands. Right, but especially back then, it would have been bad. This man likely could not work. The account in Luke tells us that it was his right hand, right? So probably his dominant hand. Having your dominant hand be crippled could mean that this man was a beggar, right? Because he couldn't work a normal job for the time. His life was probably over as he once knew it. He's probably poor because of his crippled hand. But suffice it to say, this man suffered greatly. Because of this deformity. He, he may have been in constant pain. It may have left him in poverty. But no doubt this man suffered because of the condition of his hand. But after this day, this man's hand was not going to be a problem for him anymore. Because the Lord Jesus was going to have mercy on him. Because Jesus was going to show him compassion. But there was something else going on in the synagogue that day, and it was a little bit more sinister, or a lot more sinister, I should say. Um, and it was going on in the heart of the Pharisees. Read verse 2 with me. And they, this is referring to the Pharisees, we know that from verse 6, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. So it says they, the Pharisees are watching Jesus, and the tense of that verb in the original language indicates that it was a continual watching. They're always watching Jesus. And this isn't a positive thing, right? It's not like they're keeping their eyes on Jesus so they could learn from his example, right? Or fixing their eyes on Jesus. No, it was not anything good at all. They were scrutinizing him. The Pharisees had come to hate him, so they began to scrutinize every single thing that he did, every single thing that he said, because they were looking for some kind of fault in him, which is Real quick, this isn't in the notes. He's faultless because he's the Lord God in flesh. No faults in him. Perfect righteousness in him. But they're looking for something because they don't believe who he is. They're looking for some kind of fault in Jesus. And our verse 2 also tells us that they were looking to accuse him. 
And this isn't the normal kind of accuse that we would use in our everyday language, right? Where you're having an argument with someone and, and, and you say, don't accuse me of that, right? It's not that light of a thing. This word for accuse here actually is a legal term. It has a legal meaning. They were watching Jesus to see if he would do anything that they could take him to court over. They were watching him that they might accuse him in court. Specifically, they were looking to see if they could take him to the Sanhedrin and formally charge him in their courts. And if you don't know what the Sanhedrin is, uh, simply, it's the Jewish court system back then. Right? So they want to take him to the Sanhedrin to accuse him. But it, the verses say that he, they were watching Jesus to see whether or not he would heal the man on the Sabbath. And they were watching for this because if Jesus healed the man, again, I'm, I'm belaboring the point, they were going to bring a charge against him to the Sanhedrin. What charge, might you ask? Specifically, the charge of Sabbath breaking. And under the Old Covenant, if you guys know your Old, Old Testament at all, the penalty for someone found guilty of intentionally breaking the Sabbath was death. God takes the Sabbath really, really, really seriously. It was a capital offense to intentionally break the Sabbath under the Old Covenant. And the Sanhedrin, we know historically, had chosen death by stoning. So the Pharisees were watching Jesus to see if they could get something on him to have him stoned to death for breaking the Sabbath. Now, you're probably wondering how healing somebody could be understood as breaking the Sabbath. And you're thinking that for a couple of reasons. One, because you're not crazy. Right, Because healing someone is not Sabbath-breaking. And two, you're thinking that because you've been raised Christians and not under Pharisees. So how in the world is this considered Sabbath-breaking to heal someone on the Sabbath? You've got to remember, like we talked about last week, the 1,500 unbiblical rules that the Pharisees had placed on the Sabbath day. Last week I said 1,000. I went and studied it again. It was actually more around 1,500 rules concerning the Sabbath day. According to their tradition, uh, which was nowhere found in Scripture, you weren't allowed to do medical work on the Sabbath. But there were a couple of exceptions. I want to be fair to them. Uh, you were allowed to save life on the Sabbath. right? So if someone was going to die, if they didn't receive medical attention, you could help them. Or if an injury or disease was going to get worse, if there was no medical intervention, then you were allowed to help that person on the Sabbath. If the things going to get worse or the person is going to die, you could help them. But apart from those two exceptions, you were to wait until the next day to help the suffering or sick person. Apart from those two exceptions, you wait until the proper day to help them. I'll give you an example. If a person dislocated their arm on the Sabbath, you could prop their arm on something so it doesn't get any worse, but you could not pop the arm back into place until after the Sabbath day was over. Right, so you would just, literally, you would just leave that person in agony until it was the proper time to do good and help them. Remember, the Pharisees had placed so many rules and so many restrictions on the Sabbath day that it had become a nightmare to the people. What God had intended to be a day of rest and worship and refreshment and rejoicing in God had become a horrible burden where you weren't even allowed to help somebody in need. The Pharisees had completely ruined the Sabbath day with their unbearable rules. And for the sake of their tradition, for the sake of their tradition, they were willing to look the other way as human beings suffered because it was the, quote, wrong day to help them. This is the epitome of legalism. 
This is cold, hard-hearted rule-keeping for the sake of rule-keeping. But if you read the, the Bible, God tells us that his laws concerning how we're to treat other people is summed up with, kids, you know this one, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's the summary of the second half of the Ten Commandments. But for the sake of their tradition, they were willing to ignore the clear command of God to help people regardless of what day it was. For the sake of their tradition, they make void the law of God, is what Jesus says. What's, what's really wicked and vile here, if you think about it, is that the Pharisees knew that Jesus was compassionate. They knew he would heal this man in the synagogue. I personally think that they probably planted him in the synagogue. Unbeknownst to him, I, I think they probably planted him. They, they knew that Jesus was compassionate. They knew he would heal him. They knew that whenever Jesus came across people in need, that he would always help them. They knew that Jesus could not and would not turn a blind eye to the suffering of others. They knew what a righteous and compassionate person the Lord Jesus is. So they tried to use his love against him so they could have him stoned. I hope you're starting to get a picture of how hard-hearted and hateful the Pharisees were toward Jesus. They hated him to the point where they were willing to use his compassion against him to have him killed. And here's the kicker to all of this. Jesus knew what they were thinking. He knew what they were thinking. He knew what they were trying to do. In the parallel account in Luke chapter 6, verse 8, Luke tells us that Jesus knew their thoughts, meaning he knew their intentions. He knew that they were waiting to see whether or not he would heal the man. He knew they wanted to take him to the Sanhedrin. He knew they were looking for a way to have him killed. He knew what was at stake if he healed the man. Please hear that. We're going to come back to that later. He knew what was at stake if he healed the man. He knew that the Pharisees were going to try and have him put to death if he had mercy on this man and violated their traditions. But what does our Lord do? Verse 3, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. Jesus doesn't care. He doesn't care what the Pharisees think. He doesn't care about their unbiblical traditions and what they say about healing on the Sabbath. He doesn't care that they're going to try and kill him over this. Jesus sees this man. He sees this man in need of compassion. That this man is in need of mercy. That this man needs help. And Jesus knows that he has the ability to help him. So he calls the man over to himself. Jesus plans on making a point by healing this man. A point aimed directly at the hypocritical and cold hearts of the Pharisees. And also he plans on making a point about compassion. But something I love about Jesus calling the man to come here is that the man didn't have to approach Jesus to ask for help. I love that. I love that. And get a picture of who your Lord is. Don't get me wrong, many times... In the Gospels, people approach Jesus and ask him for healing, and then Jesus responds to them. But here, I imagine this man is ashamed of his handicap, as, as many people are. He's probably scared to death whenever Jesus calls him over to stand in front of everybody. But Jesus, I can't get past this, he sees him. This man doesn't approach him. Jesus actively is looking to do good for people. He sees this man. He can see the need. This man cannot hide his withered hand. He clearly needs help. 
But Jesus sees the need and then decides to do something about it. And he does so without anyone asking him to. He sees and he helps. He just shows them, he just shows the man compassion before he even asks. This is the heart of our Savior. This is the heart of our Savior. He always sought to do good to others. He always perfectly in righteousness loved his neighbor. But then Jesus turns on the Pharisees and he poses a question to them. And it's a question that's meant to confront the hypocrisy of what they're plotting in their hearts, show them the absurdity of their traditions, and reveal how none of them understand the love of God or even the word of God. Verse 4, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Now, there are two ways that you can understand what Jesus is saying here, and I think both are valid. I don't think either of them really exclude the other one. The first one is this. Everyone who knows anything about the law of God knows that it is never okay to harm or to murder anybody. Right? Nod your head up and down. Don't scare me like this, you bunch of sociopaths. Right? It's never okay to harm anyone or murder. That was just a joke. Don't get upset. Um, on any day of the week, it's never okay to do harm or to murder. Right? On any day of the week, that's always wrong. But everyone who knows anything about the law of God knows that God commands his people to do good to their neighbor and to save life when they're able to do so. So what Jesus is doing is he's holding up two extremes to show the Pharisees how foolish their tradition is. It goes something like this. If it's never okay to harm or to kill, then it must always be okay to do good for others and save life, even on the Sabbath. If it's never okay to do this, it must always be okay to do that. In fact, it's a moral imperative for us that we do good to others when we can. It would be sin for us to see someone in need and refuse to help them if we're able to help them. You guys know this. Jesus' half-brother James in James chapter 4, verse 17, talking about sins of omission. He said, for you to know what you ought to do and not do it is sin. For you to see someone in need, know that you're able to help them and turn a blind eye to them. That is sin. Jesus' point is that it's never wrong to do good and help someone. Never. Doing good and helping, being defined by the scriptures. I want to clarify that. Right? It's never wrong to do good and help someone if doing good and helping them is in accord with the word of God. We can never sin and, and say, I was trying to help the person. Right? right? Like you don't help someone get an abortion because you're helping them. Right? You get what I'm saying there? In accordance with the word of God, it's always okay to do good and it's always okay to help. And since it's always right to do good for others, then Jesus should, by the command of God, heal this man. A child can see that this makes sense. It's always okay to do good. It's never okay to do bad. Only a hard-hearted, blind Pharisee can't see that this is true. But the second way to understand this goes a bit deeper and addresses the hearts of the Pharisees. Remember, Jesus knows what they're thinking. Right, that's real important in, in understanding this. He knows what they're thinking. He knows that they're plotting to have him killed. So Jesus... What he does here is he points out their inconsistency. He says, is it okay to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? If I could put it in my own words, what Jesus is saying here is to the Pharisees, 
So you're telling me that according to your tradition, I shouldn't do good and heal this man, and in a manner of speaking, save his life from a life of suffering and begging. I shouldn't do that. But it's okay for you to seek to do me harm and take my life, the life of an innocent man. He's pointing out their hypocrisy. You're telling me I shouldn't do good while you and your hearts are planning on doing me harm. He's pointing out that they're hypocrites. They say that Jesus shouldn't heal because the day belongs to God. But all the while, on that same day, they're planning and plotting a murder. They say Jesus is sinning if he helps this man. But they're blind to their own sin of desiring the death of an innocent person. That's a violation of the sixth commandment. That's murder in their hearts. These Pharisees are blind hypocrites who think that they're righteous, but their hearts are far from God. They they want to condemn Jesus for showing compassion on the Sabbath while they plan to have the Lord of the Sabbath killed. Hypocrisy. They want to, for the sake of their tradition, ignore God's commandment to love their neighbor while at the same time condemning Jesus for obeying God. Jesus' point is that it's always okay to do good, no matter what day it is. And the Pharisees are complete and utter hypocrites because they seek to do evil on the same day. And how did the Pharisees respond to this question? The text says, but they were silent. This means they they kept being silent. They were silent when he asked, and they kept their mouths shut after he asked. They refused to answer his question. For quite some time, they were silent, is what's implied here. Which means that Jesus poses this question, and he lets it hang there in the air in the synagogue. You could probably cut the tension with a knife. Right? He just lets it hang. He let his question penetrate their hearts. He let his question reveal their sin to them and everyone else in the synagogue who saw that they didn't know how to answer him. But, but why wouldn't they answer? Maybe you're asking that, right? Why wouldn't they have a response for Jesus? Well, they knew that if they answered, yes, it's okay to do good and save life, that they would then be agreeing with Jesus and have to submit to what he says and have to submit to what he does over what their tradition says. If they agree with Jesus, they have to submit to him and ignore their tradition. But if they answer no, it's not okay to do good and save life, then they're going to sound like crazy people because it's never okay to do harm or to kill. So they're stuck between two decisions, really, after Jesus poses this question. He does this all the time to them, I might add. They're stuck between two decisions. They can agree with Jesus and admit that they're wrong and that he's right. And submit to his authority as Lord of the Sabbath and by extension Lord of everything. Or they can make themselves look stupid and irrational in front of everyone in the synagogue. But they remain silent. And their silence gives an answer. And that answer is essentially this. I hate Jesus. That's the answer of the Pharisees. They hate him. They're blind in their sin. They refuse to acknowledge when they're wrong, no matter how crazy their tradition is. And why are they so stubborn? I try to get in the mind of a Pharisee. Why are they so stubborn? Because they're proud. They're proud. They just don't want to submit to Jesus. They just don't want to admit that they're wrong. 
They just don't want to accept who he is. Why? Because the moment they do, they know that they're no longer the religious authority in Israel, but rather Jesus is. They know that should they submit to Jesus, they would really no longer be the authority over anything because Jesus claims authority over everything. And they refuse to let go of that kind of power. They refuse to let go of their authority. They would actually rather oppose the undeniable Son of God and keep their alleged authority than repent, believe in Him, and be reconciled to God. They're proud. But now let's look at Jesus' response to their silence. Verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He looked at them with anger. Jesus is angry with them. This is the only time in Mark's gospel that Jesus is said to be truly angry. Other times there are words used that give a connotation of he's frustrated or he's annoyed. But this is the only time that he's said to be angry. And this is the strongest word that Mark could have used here. The words orge. This is the same word for anger that John uses in the book of Revelation when he talks about the wrath, the orge of the Lamb. This is pure, righteous anger and indignation with the Pharisees. You could say it this way, the anger of God Almighty flashes from his eyes as he looks at every single Pharisee in the face. And this isn't a quick glance either. Again, some, some of the, 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 the verb tenses and whatnot in the original language tells us that this is a slow, intentional, looking them all in the face. It's not a glance. You know what I'm talking about. You're mad at someone. You take your time to look at them in the face. But he's doing this sinlessly with righteous anger. Our Lord is furious with them over their pride because they refuse him. A quick note here. What a warning that this is to those who reject Jesus and are hard-hearted towards him. What a warning that this is. That the wrath of God is directed toward them. The anger of the Lamb that you see in Christ's eyes is just a foreshadowing of the eternal condemnation that awaits all those who refuse to submit to Christ. The anger that flashed from Jesus' face is just a foreshadowing of what awaits them eternally unless they bow the knee to him and repent. But this righteous, sinless anger, Mark says, is also mixed with grief. And there is a holy tension here in the emotions of our Lord that I don't know if I can explain. I don't know if anyone can really fully explain this. He's angry with them because they're so hard set against him and refuse to repent and believe in the face of such clear evidence He's angry with them because they would deny his authority so they can keep their own. But he's also grieved in his heart because he knows that they're signing themselves up for their own destruction. He's grieved. As Ezekiel tells us, God says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? No, but rather that they would turn and live. So Jesus, while absolutely angry with them, is pained by their hardness of heart that's going to lead them to hell. And I, I, I imagine this is how Christ always looks at the unrepentant. It's as if he's saying, wrath is coming and you deserve it because you keep rejecting me, but I'd rather you repent and live. But even in the midst of all of this, 
Even in the midst of all of this righteous anger and indignation he has toward the Pharisees, our Lord would not be put off from doing good to the man with the withered hand, would he? And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. This blew my mind a little bit, thinking about this. Knowing what was at stake if he broke the traditions of the Pharisees, knowing that they sought his life, knowing what would surely come later if he healed the man, Jesus still, still healed him. He did it anyway. And Jesus, with a word, commands the man to stretch forth his crippled hand, and the man obeys him in faith, and he's instantly healed. Life throwed, flowed through his hand for the first time in a long time. You can imagine the joy that this man felt to know that he didn't have to beg anymore. To have full use of his hand again. Jesus did good for him. He showed compassion and mercy to him. And in doing so, he glorified his God and Father. But then we see the result of Jesus healing this man. Verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. Or how to kill him. Driven mad by anger. Luke uses some words in the original that says they went out of their mind with anger. They were driven crazy with their anger. Completely irrationally, the Pharisees storm out of the synagogue and begin to plot with another group how they're going to kill Jesus. And you should know this. This counseling together is not to determine what they're going to do to Jesus. They already know that they want to have him killed. They're just planning how they're going to get it done. Right? And why do they have to plan how they're going to do it? Because this is kind of funny to think about. Jesus actually didn't break any pharisaical laws that day. Of course, he didn't break any of the law of God, but he didn't even break their traditions on that day. They were looking to see if he'll break any of their traditions so they can take him to the Sanhedrin. Jesus could have healed this man any way he wanted to, but it's not a violation of their traditions to talk on the Sabbath. So Jesus speaks a word and heals the man. They have nothing to take him to court over. But since Jesus so openly defies them and points out their hypocrisy, they want him dead. That's what this comes down to. So if you had any thought that maybe they were just so zealous for what they thought was right, no, Jesus didn't even do anything wrong according to their tradition on this day. They hated him because they rejected who he is. They wanted to have him killed. And so from this early on in his ministry, the cross looms in the distance for the Lord Jesus. And he unflinchingly continued to walk toward it for us. For our sakes. Now, what can we take away from this text? I mentioned three things in the introduction. So let's go ahead and crack into them, right? First, I want us to focus on our Lord and what's revealed in this passage about him and what he's like and how perfect of a savior that he is for us. The first thing I want us to consider is the courage of Jesus. Jesus knew that God commands us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And in order to do that, in this situation, he knew it was going to make people angry. Angry enough to kill him. But our Lord never backed down from doing the will of God, did he? He never backed down. He never shrunk back from obedience to God because of the opinions or threats of men. 
He, he never let the opinions of men or a fear of man dictate whether or not he would obey his father. Ever. And consider this. This makes, maybe makes you uncomfortable. As we confirmed in our confession of faith today, Jesus is truly God and truly man. He got scared. Jesus got scared sometimes. That doesn't make him a coward. A coward is someone who gets scared and then refuses to do the right thing. Our Lord was courageous. The true and better Adam. The true man. Who being afraid of what might happen says, I will still do what is right. That is courage. That's your Lord. The God man and a courageous man. But how often do we sin in in not doing what we know we should do? Because we're afraid of what other people might say or what they might do or what they might think about us. How often do we leave good undone because we're afraid? How often do we stay silent? Please hear this. Our culture tends to get us backed into a corner where Christians think they can't talk anymore. How often do we stay silent when we should speak up and we stay silent because we crave the approval of man? Because we fear men. How often do we participate in sinful behavior or even condone sinful behavior in others because we don't want to be counted as the odd man out? How often do we neglect our duties as the people of God because it's just easier to go with the flow in our culture? But let me tell you how many times Jesus did that. Zero. Listen, Christian, feel bad about yourself. Feel very good about your Lord. Zero times did he do this. He was perfectly righteous always. In the face of opposition, he still continued to do the will of his Father. He even says it is his food and his drink to do the will of God. He would rather obey God than eat. And he was of this mind no matter what the cost. Even though the whole world stood against him, he continued to obey his Father. And this, brothers and sisters, is why Jesus is a fit Savior for us. Smile. This is why he's a fit Savior for us. We sin. We don't live righteously. We leave undone the things that should be done. We don't always show compassion. We often fear men, but not our courageous and righteous Savior. John in 1 John calls him Jesus Christ, the righteous. Or another way to phrase that is the righteous one. He's our victorious, conquering, courageous king. He always did what was right. Extol him. Worship him in your hearts for this if you never have. See your righteous king. This is why he's the perfect savior for us. He always did what was right. This is why he's the only one, the true Adam, the perfect man, who can give us his righteousness by faith. Our savior is a savior of great courage and righteousness that you and I don't have. But he gives it to us by faith. So that when we stand before God, we are clothed in his righteousness. Second, let's consider the selfless compassion of Jesus. Not caring what the cost to himself would be. The Lord Jesus healed the man with the withered hand. Hold that in your head. Not 
caring what the cost to himself would be, Jesus healed that man. He knew that if he healed that man and showed mercy to him, it would lead to his own death. In order to heal this man, Jesus was effectively signing his own death warrant. But he healed him anyway. In order to do the man good and show him compassion, pity, and mercy, in order to heal him, Jesus condemned himself to die at the hands of sinful men. And what did it cost the man with the withered hand? Nothing. Nothing. Simply stretching out his hand in faith. But oh, what a high price for our Lord to do good for this man. Brothers and sisters, behold your king. Behold your king. The selfless one who is full of compassion to the needy, who won't turn anyone away ever. The one who, at no cost to others, but a great cost to himself, did good for them. This is why he is the perfect Savior for sinners, like you and I. In his compassion, the Lord Jesus sought to save us, just like he sought to heal this man. And he knew that in order to heal us of our transgressions and sins, that he would be condemned to die. He knew that in order to save us from our sins, that it would cost him his life that he would have to take on the wrath of God in our place for sins that we have committed so that we could be forgiven he knew the great pain and great cost it would be to him if he were to save us and he did it anyway he did it anyway he signed himself up to die for us because of his great compassion he had for us that while we were yet sinners he died for us in order to spiritually heal us of our sin, in order to do us eternal good, the Son of God died for us. And what must we do to receive this salvation? We simply stretch forth the hand of faith and lay it on Christ. It costs us nothing. But what a high price for the Savior. What a Savior we have in Him. The compassionate, selfless one who loves people at no cost to them, but a high price to himself. And then lastly, this one's more bitter. In contrast to Christ and his goodness and his compassion and his love and his courage, I want us to now consider the hard-heartedness of sinful human beings. Remember the Pharisees. All right, in, in the Pharisees, we get a good picture of what it means to be hard-hearted. But why, again, were they so stubborn against the Lord Jesus? Because they didn't want to give up their authority. They didn't want to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. They had become so calloused in their pride that they refused to bend the knee to the Lord of glory. That they, they refused to admit that they were wrong. And they refused to admit that Jesus was right. They refused to acknowledge his supremacy because they wanted to keep authority and control over their lives. When we read about the Pharisees, we need to take a good, hard look at ourselves and make sure that we're not behaving like them. Rather than thinking probably what most of us do often, rather than thinking those foolish Pharisees, we need to be asking ourselves, am I being stubborn toward the Lord? 
If you're a Christian, listen to me. You obviously, we know that you've been given a, a new heart that loves the Lord Jesus. And the major principle theme of the Christian's life is I want to glorify and honor Christ. But that does not mean that you can't become hard-hearted sometimes. You're a fool if you think that that's what that means. We have to look at ourselves and ask, am I being silent before the Lord like the Pharisees were because I don't want to admit that I'm wrong? Am I being stubborn toward him and not acknowledging my sin and repenting? Am I refusing his command to show compassion to other people? Do I read the word? Oh, woe to us if this is us. Do I read the word of God or hear the word of God preached and then like the Pharisees sit in silence because I'm stubborn? Or do I cry out, God, you're right. You're right. I've been wrong. I've been sinning. I'm sorry. I repent. Forgive me. Wash me clean. Help me to, to honor you and follow you in all that I do and say and think because you alone are God. You alone are Lord of the Sabbath and I submit to you. Let me admonish you. Please don't be hard-hearted toward the Lord. Please don't be hard-hearted to Him. As we saw in His character, He has been too compassionate he has been too gracious. He's been too kind. And he is too glorious of a savior for us to be stubborn toward him. If you know where you've been ignoring him, repent. Repent. If you know where you've been stubborn, repent. He's a kind and compassionate savior who forgives. Never forget that. But indeed, we, we must bend the knee to him or we are no better off than the Pharisees in the synagogue that day. We must submit to the Lord. But to conclude this, as we look at this text, we get a, a glimpse into our own stubborn hearts for sure. But oh man, what a view we get of our Lord and what he's like. We see his character, that he's compassionate and courageous and a righteous savior who takes pity on people no matter what the cost. In other words, you could say he is good and he does good. But in looking at who Jesus is, we see what we should be, don't we? I want to get this clear. Don't ever get these two things backwards. He's first your Savior. And then second, He's your example. He's not just your example. He's not just your Savior. First, He saves you. Then, He sets an example for you to walk in. When we look at Him, we see what we ought to be. And we know, according to Paul in Romans 8, that God saved us so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. Relevant to our text this evening, that we would be courageous to do what is right, that we would, we would be compassionate to lay down our wills and our lives in order to love others and seek their good. So please, Christian, let me encourage you, don't autopilot. Consciously strive to imitate this Jesus that you've seen in the text this evening. It's really easy for us to autopilot, like, yeah, I'm trying to keep the rules and stuff, but how often are we actively striving to imitate him? He's our example. Push yourself to do what's right according to the word of God, no matter what other people around you might say, maybe even people in your own camp. When you feel yourself wanting to succumb to the pressure of the world, remember our Lord Jesus in the synagogue that day. Against everyone around him, he did what was right and what would honor his father as holy. And please, 
Christian, be compassionate and merciful towards other people. Imitate the Savior. Please hear me, again, especially if you consider yourself in the Reformed tradition. True religion is not just sound doctrine and reverent worship services. It's not. The Pharisees had that. I'm serious. Jesus says, do what the Pharisees tell you to do, but don't live like them. He said they sit on the seat of Moses, right? Like they knew good theology. Theologically speaking, in many regards, Jesus lined up with the Pharisees more than anyone else in his day. They had good doctrine. They had good external reverence in their worship. But it's a lie of the devil if you think that our true religion is just sound doctrine and reverent worship services. Mere externals and knowing theology is not the full extent of the thing. And listen, doctrine and reverent worship are incredibly important. But that's not all there is. It's not all there is. True religion is caring for the people around us. Starting in our homes with our spouses and our children and our other family members. And I'll say that again because that's often the hardest. True religion is caring for the people around us. Starting in our homes with our spouses and our children and our other family members. And then it works its way out into how we treat our coworkers and our friends and even strangers that we meet. The compassion of our Lord extended to whoever he was around at all times. So please, Christian, be kind to other people. Here's your Sunday school piece of application. Do good for others. I'm serious. Do good for what's others and strive to do what's right according to the word. Show mercy and compassion to other people. Even when it's difficult. Even when you're tired, even when it's going to come at personal cost, because this is the example that Jesus has left us. This is the kind of people that he calls us to be, namely people that look like him. So remember the great love and mercy and compassion that Jesus has shown you, and then go, do likewise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth that we see in your word that that we get a glimpse of who our savior is and also at the same time sadly for us a glimpse into our own stubbornness as we look at the pharisees god i pray that you would make our hearts soft and malleable that whenever we come before christ in the scriptures whenever we sit under the preaching of the word whenever we read the word that we would not sit in stubborn silence like the pharisees but that we would say oh lord you are right and i've been wrong teach me Help us to submit to him. Let the love of Christ govern all of our interactions with other people, even people that we have a hard time liking. But Lord, we do thank you for such a wonderful Savior that we have in Jesus, the righteous one, the compassionate one. God, we thank you for him taking our sins and giving us his righteousness. It's only through him that we have hope. And we thank you and we praise you and we pray this all in his name. Amen.